cross-examination. We are here at Aletheia Bible Fellowship in Portland, Oregon, and if you've tuned in in the past, you will notice that Adam is on panel tonight, so I am here as your host. My name is Heidi Parker, and I'm a deacon of external ministries here at Aletheia. Um, Cross-Ex, or Cross-Examination, is a ministry of this church, Aletheia Bible Fellowship, and a resource with the goal of providing people with a meaningful understanding of Christian doctrine, their Bible, as well as connecting people with local church bodies. Our aim here tonight is to um, essentially have a local pastors answering questions, answering your questions, and um, to make sure that you guys are fully convinced with what you believe. So we have three local pastors here tonight, all from Aletheia Bible Fellowship, and I'm going to start with my right, and you can go ahead and introduce yourself and give us something about you. Okay, I'm Adam, (laughs) and I'm normally in that seat, like Heidi said. I'm a pastor in training here at Aletheia. Um, Something about myself. I was actually giving this a little bit of thought earlier, because the whole thing is like, describe something about yourself that makes people know that you're a person, you know? Um, So I am aware that my hairline is receding here and here, and I am a little insecure about it. So there's that. I'm Adam. I am Colin. I am also an assistant pastor here at ABF. And let's see, I've been on panel a couple times, and I'm trying to think of what I can say that's different, you know? Um, But... I play this, this bad boy right here, I play that drum set um, in the worship service and other independent band adventures, Um, so that's fun, and I don't know, I think that's cool. (laughs) And uh, I'm Pastor Josh, and I am not an assistant pastor (laughs) at ABF. I've been a pastor here for 15 years, and something you may not know about me is that I have a decent amount of music on Spotify for myself and for a band I'm in called The Theory Of, and then for a band that I was in called Rather Than Dream. All right, so before we start with questions, we're going to go over um, some details There will be some questions that might have technical answers and language that goes along with that. So if you hear this bell, gentlemen, that means that the word that you're using might be hard to understand. And we want to keep this in plain language. um, So we'll ding them if they get sort of too technical for us. Um, Also, to help facilitate discussion, we've gathered questions. um, We've sort of farmed questions from around uh, online, multiple churches, our friends and family. And if you're viewing us here live, we have a microphone available, so you can just step up to the microphone and ask your question when I prompt you. And we also, for those of us on Facebook Live, can comment on the thread, so, or on the live feed. Uh, We have about 90 minutes, so we want you to ask lots of questions. Um, There are some rules for that. Make sure that your questions are exactly that, questions and not accusations. Also, that your questions are not full of points and stories, um, that your questions are not your answers to somebody else's questions. That's what they're here for. 
and that you stay respectful within that. Our pastors, you know, obviously they're up here giving their time, um, and so we want to respect that, um, respect them as well. And so in short, we're going to go ahead and start these questions here. If you have, uh, if you need a reminder, there are the rules posted on the board, and then we also post them on Facebook Live. So tonight our topic is the church, and so I'm going to have Pastor Josh go ahead and explain what the topic is. So tonight we're going to be talking about the church. Thank you, Jacob. <laughs> tonight we're going to be talking about the church, and the church is, it's a very important topic. Um, it's super broad in its reach. But essentially what the church is, is it is the body of Christ. And what we mean by that is it is, not to get too much into our questions later, but we're speaking about the, the, the people that are here on this earth now, um, and then the people, the people that are here on this earth now that are disciples of Christ or followers of Christ, and the people that have been on this earth before that are disciples of Christ and the people that will be on this earth later. All of those people are what we call the church and how they interact with each other and um, live together and work together. All of that is inclusive in the church. So it's a very big, broad topic. All right. So the first question is similar to that. It is, what is the purpose of the church? We're going to go ahead and start with Adam. All right. What is the purpose of the church? Um, I would say that that's a multifaceted answer for and a very broad question, but <coughs> the purpose of the church, um, part of the purpose, as Josh just alluded to, is to unite everything under the authority of Christ in, in the church. Um, the purpose of the church is to spread the knowledge of Christ and spread the gospel message of Christ. Um, the purpose of the church is to provide a place of worship and fellowship and um, prayer um, for the body of Christ, for, you know, that gathering of people past, present, and future. Um, yeah, I guess in short, that's what I would say the, the purpose of the church is. I just add that... Um I suppose before Jesus, you know, after Jesus was resurrected and before he ascended to heaven to his position at the right hand of the Father, he said, you know, go make disciples, go baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a huge aspect of the purpose of the church. It's a mission statement, the Great Commission, you know. Um, so for us to grow the church, in other words, and to teach people about God. And Jesus also asks, adds that uh, we're to teach those people how to obey God, how to obey his commands. So those are the things that the church's responsibility is at its base nature, too. Yeah, I think, so the church has, a, has like what Adam said, a multifaceted responsibility on this earth. To sum it up, I would say the summation of that is to be the, you know, the hands and feet of, of God. Yeah. So the that's why it's, yeah, that's why it's called the body of Christ, 
It's Christ's body as he is not with us right now. He's the head of the body and he's ascended to heaven. And our understanding is that we are to enact his will here on earth. Not just to enact his will, but to enact his purposes. So that's going to include things like, um, that is going to include things like spreading his gospel message. So that's the message of hope that we can have a relationship with God and be freed from the, the wages of our sin. But that's also going to mean taking care of people who are in need, um, ministering to uh, the way that it's put in Acts, I think, is, you know, to ministering to the widows and the orphans and, and um, basically the, I know, I'm not trying to be um, politically correct here, but ministering to the lower echelon of society, which you have to understand in the day when this was written, the widows and orphans were considered second-class citizens, if citizens at all. Um, so the fact that Christ was hanging out with those people and ministering to those people and the tax collectors and so on and so forth. So there's, there's missional work that the church is supposed to do. There's also the administering of sacrament, right? So we see Christ participating with his disciples in the communion. Um, it wasn't called the communion at the, t at the time, but we see that. We see as Colin quoted or mentioned um, in, within the Great Commission that there's baptism that's supposed to take place. We know that Christ was baptizing um, and before him, you know, to make way for him, John the Baptist, the Baptist, was baptizing. Um, for us, we as a, ABF as a church, defines like our local responsibility as um, grounding people in a relationship with scripture, with doctrine, so that's right teaching, and then with the local church itself, with the fellowship of believers. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I was going to say the same thing that you just said. Um, it, our job is not to just, the church's job is not to just hook people, you know. Once people accept that Christ is who he says he was, you know, um, the church's job isn't over. It's, it's a, a, there's a long-term investment in growing those people into a deeper understanding of what that means and who they're called to be, etc. So, yeah, like Josh just said. All right, with that said, how do you measure its success? The church's success. We'll go My with turn. Colin. How do you measure the church's success? Um, well, I mean, you can measure, like, like I said in the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples. You can measure it in some part by the growth of it, but that's not really the full measure of its success, right? Because just because you have something big... Like, you could have the biggest, I don't know, apple ever, but if half of it's rotten, then you really only have half of an apple. So, uh, we measure the church's success by its size, but more importantly, by its quality, by its purity before God, by, you know, the ability of the church to transmit who God is and share that with other people and to be able to... Um, teach other people how to obey God, how to be good people, and to do that in a way that is as inclusive of God's character as possible, you know, which is a really, really big task, and it takes an entire body to do it. No, you know, one person 
because partly because like we've talked about before god's a multifaceted being you know father son and holy spirit like he's complex and so he's best seen in groups of people in relational communities and that i would say is a good way to define the success of the church yeah i was i was gonna say before you take away what i possibly would say anyways but (laughs) (laughs) um so let me just jump in real quick i would say a measure of of success not that it's the measure of success but it's it's an element of measuring it um is legacy based um like are you not only are you you bringing people to Christ, but are those people bringing to Christ? And are those people grounding people to what that means? So there's a big aspect of legacy in terms of measuring success. And I know that it's something that we, as a, as a body here at Aletheia, we, we are all, it's always on the forefront of our minds. Like, what, what is that going to look like for that boy right there who's 10 years old now? You know, like, how, are, how is our mission here going to be carried forward? Um, our mission, you know, of serving God and, and proclaiming Christ and bringing people to that. So it's, uh, a legacy is a big aspect of, of measuring that. Well, now that Adam has taken <laughs> from what I was going to say, I would say you measure it by how many jets you have. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Not just how many, but the quality of, of jet. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, legacy is, I, I would definitely say, the measure of it. You never really know whether something is doing what it's supposed to do based upon the word of mouth that people have. That's what it comes down to. You know that something's doing what it's supposed to do based on the quality of its fruit. So if that church is producing fruit, and that can be in multiple ways, right? But if that church is producing fruit, whether it's helping a community come closer to Christ, not just putting Band-Aids on it by meeting its physical needs, like, remember what Christ did. It was easier for him to, to, uh, to heal somebody than it was to forgive their sins. And forgiving their sins, or the healing of that person, was to bring people to a knowledge that their sins could be forgiven. So taking care of a community and healing people isn't as important, and it's much easier than bringing them to a knowledge of the forgiveness of their sins. But... Healing people and bringing, taking care of a community is an aspect of fruit. And if you have a church that's producing that um, aspect of the fruit and is producing uh, people's lives that are, that are being healed on top of that, so not just the physical taking care of the community, but then the sort of internal psychosocial aspect of the community being healed, um, then you understand that the lip service that's being paid to Christ isn't, it's not lip service, that it's actually producing something. And then on top of that, that's all fine and dandy, but as Adam and Colin both pointed out, when you really know that that church is doing what it's supposed to is when you see that the generation that you taught is teaching the next generation the same thing. That's how you know. It's, you know, it's sort of the, the... the grandparent, we can now twice sit removed. back and... Twice removed, yeah. Like yeah. Not, you, not your kids, you know. but your kids' kids. If you've taught somebody how to teach successfully. Right. Right. And, and you, see, you see that in the gospel mission. Christ wanted his disciples to go out and make disciples, which is what? That's a replication of what Christ did. So if Christ 
has within himself the church. He contains within himself the church. And then he extends himself out to these people and says, you are now my body. Then he wants them to go out and do the same thing. And when we make disciples, then we teach them the same thing. And it goes on and on and on and on. I don't know if that answers the question. What was the question? What's the purpose? Measuring success. How do you measure success? Yes. Based upon the quality and based upon whether it is sustainable, whether there's continuity. Quality and continuity, that's, that's what I would say. Um, and, and let's be clear when we say quality, we are talking about quality as measured against the scripture. Right. I want to be clear about that yeah. too. Quality is not measured against social standards or the world standards. Or feelings. Yeah, I think there's a, there, there, there was a sermon just a couple weeks ago here at ABF. There's a meme on our Instagram um, that talks about needing to be held to a higher standard as Christians. I can't remember what it is, so I shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> Look back on our Facebook page. Yeah. All right, so this question is for Adam. If you can clarify, when did the church begin? <coughs> um, on the day of Pentecost, I would say, which is like, what, 50 days or two months or something after Christ died? when the Spirit descended upon that gathering of people? I mean, yeah. I, you, could, you could argue all sorts. Of, I think that's a good starting. I think you could say that. What I was, because I, I, yeah. What I was thinking is that Christ's ascension, because after he died and, you know, his apostles were kind of lost and, like, wandering, wondering what to do with themselves or whatever, you know, Christ rose from the dead. He spent the next, you know, 40 days or so, like, reorienting them and saying, go, you know, like, upon leaving, he was like, go. That's sort of like, I would call that the soft launch, you know, like the soft launch of the church. And Pentecost is like the hard, like, grand opening, you know, where it's like every, the spirit, like, laid upon all those people and they preached to all the masses in, in Jerusalem and then they spread across the empire and it was like, boom, you know, blew up. Yeah, the reason why I'm reticent to nail it down to a date, although I would agree, that's pretty much, if you're going to give a textbook answer, that's probably it, is just because when I was studying to be a pastor, I, I had a topic to write on, and the topic was, did Christ intend for a following? And so the question contained within that is, you know, essentially, when was the church established? And so there's a lot of philosophical questions about, you know, if the church was established in the mind of Christ, <laughs> was it established at the beginning of everything? Did it even have a beginning? None of those things matter because here on earth, it started at Pentecost. That's pretty much, yeah. Sounds like a very Josh rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll let you read the paper. All right, this one's for Colin. How many people do you need to have a church? <laughs> I would say that you need two people to have a church. I would say that you have two people that you need two people to have a church and it's just based on off the top of my head the one scripture that says where two or more people gather in my name I'm there among you or something that's a really close paraphrase. Um because the church as we're probably going to talk about is and we have talked about is the people it's not the building. It's not like you need, you know, x amount of people to be contained within a structure to have a church, you know? It's a group of people, in my mind, two or more, 
that are dedicated to serving God and being his body. Yeah, how many people do you need to have a 501c3 nonprofit? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But scripture, yeah, scripture would, I think, agree with the concept of where two or more are gathered. All right, Josh. Um, this one is, and forgive me if I say it wrong, uh, what is the literal meaning of ecc- ecclesia as we see in the New Testament? And please describe that ecclesia. word. Ecclesia? Um, yes. So the word that we have for church, ecclesia, um, that's where it comes from. And you might recognize that term in scripture. Um, you'll see it in different places. But essentially, it just means the gathering. Um, now, more so than it just being the gathering, there's a specific connotation to it. Of So, so it comes from, it's what they, so in the ancient cultures and like Roman and Greek cultures, they would have the people from their community from a community would come together to make decisions essentially and that quorum of people is the gathering that quorum of people is ecclesia um the thought process though when applied to the church has something to do with the idea of people being called out of their local um cities or whatever so there's this idea of being separated that you that you are coming out of where you were from and now you are gathering together to form something different form something new was that does that answer the question okay was there was there another part to it well the next question has more to it is that you guys good on that one no yeah i think i mean i think um if I remember right, part of the, well, the two parts is like X meaning like out of and kaleo meaning from among or from within or something like that. Right. And uh, the two, the two things. So yeah, a rough literal translation is kind of, you know, to be called out from among or whatever, which is sort of what Josh is talking about. Like there's a large population of people. There's a smaller number of people that are called out um, to form a gathering, to make a decision, as you said. And I think part of that, um, the connotation and meaning of that is that uh, it's a group that's been assembled for a purpose, right. to put it more, you know, eloquently, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and that's basically, that fits the bill pretty well for what the church tries to be, at least on a base level. Yeah, and it, there's a, there's, an allusion to the concept of holiness, which also means to be set apart. So this, there's this idea of holiness that, you know, is through it, that the church is holy, um, not just because we have an extension of the righteousness of God through our relationship with Christ, but also because our purpose is literally to be set apart from the general community or the communities that we came from. So... Yeah, like a prophet or a king that God appoints is like pulled out and meant for a purpose to do something. But but let's be clear that in that we are supposed to be set apart, it is not to be set apart in the way of coming out of and rejecting where we came from, but rather of bringing where we came from into that new intended purpose. Yeah. These people were um, were 
were gathered to make decisions for the communities they came from. So they're not called out to reject it. And I want to be clear, the church is not called out to reject the community it came from, but rather to bring the community it came from into holiness. I've also read, just quickly, I've also read that it was used in, um, in the context of the Roman army, like, like a small, um, you know, a small group like of soldiers yeah. where like, you know, like a, a century or whatever, like a hundred soldiers would, would be a type of ecclesia when they had a purpose, something to do. Mm. Yeah, like the 300. Yeah, or SEAL Team 6. Mm. All right, so these questions were submitted together. So this next one is a follow-up. Does the meaning of ecclesia include a building or property at all? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, um, because... Again, the whole, the whole meaning of ecclesia is not attached to. It's an idea, right? It's an idea that people are called out. It's it doesn't have anything to do with a place. Um, so yeah, short answer, no. With that said, do they physically have to be somewhere? <laughs> like sure, but does it have to? No, does it have to? No. Right. Like, no. There's no. There's no dedicated spot that they have to be in and we'll probably dive into this later on is it is it is the question aimed i guess we you wouldn't know but is the question aimed at trying to figure out whether a church is a church building versus a a body that's That's how i interpret it i think that's the implication yeah. yeah yeah no yeah that's that's the quick answer all right so still on the topic of property and church what is a house church and we'll go to colin uh, it's kind of a misnomer, I think, because it's not it's still not really about uh, the building or whatever. Um, it's just called a house church because in in first century, you know, Rome and in the Roman Empire, uh, the Christians were small groups of people, you know, in each town or whatever, and they didn't have a church building. They didn't have funding or whatever. It wasn't even really like legal necessarily them to do that or they may might face open persecution mm-hmm. and um so yeah they would just meet in people's houses um and so they're just sort of called house churches because it's a group of people that meet in somebody's house uh we i think we find that what was the question i don't know if i want to go what too is far. a house church yeah. yeah that's it that's it yeah do you want to say something not yet <laughs> okay. Um, the thing is that house church is sort of pejorative. Don't ding me. Is sort of a put down in today's way. That's pejorative. Put down um, in today's way of like looking at things. When we when we hear about a house church, somebody started a house church. It's usually seen as illegitimate mm-hmm. in comparison to the uh, legitimate institutionalized churches, like. Somebody will say, do, do you go to church? Or you have a ch- I've got this one before. You pastor a church. Oh, where's your building? Um, you know, and if you don't have a building, then it's like, oh, well, you're not really a pastor. That's not really the case. The truth is, is that a house church is the original church. That's how I view that. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for churches that start in houses um, and that choose even. There are churches that choose to run out of houses, even though they're larger in nature um so it's kind of like saying lay elder 
as opposed to just elder. It's kind of pejorative, like a put-down. Um, that distinction is not one that God sees as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, I imagine house church is quite popular in places like China. Yeah. Where you will face, like, open persecution and death. Or your church will literally be blown up if you have one, you know? Right. So yeah, they the do things like that. You down. They do things like they start a church in a household because it's safe. It's a safe place to come and gather and, and worship and learn about Christ. So, yeah, just like Josh. Yeah, and I've had people who've literally said, because this church here right now has about 50 members. Churches fluctuate in membership. Um, but this church here is considered small compared to a lot of other churches, um, other churches that would be viewed as successful. And um, I've had people who've said at times when we've had 30 members, for instance, where they've said, oh, that's really more of a house church. Like um, it's a put down, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where does that person get off? Like, the original church was that. It was people going off into their houses, in their communities, and God doesn't see things that way as house church versus, you know, institution church, building church. What it's, God doesn't look at things that way. I almost, I almost prefer the concept of a house church, too, because not to knock the institutionalized way of doing things, but operating out of a house, which is somebody's home, forces there to be a level of hospitality that the church has. It forces there to be a level of... Um, intimacy. Intimacy, vulnerability, functionality even. When a church building is just a church building, it is relegated to a very... Um, it's not holistic in its usage, and and it turns the building into, or it has the potential to turn the building into somewhat of an idol. And I mean, that's that's my that's my experience. It has the potential to turn the building into somewhat of an idol. Church buildings, church build church buildings are not biblical. Um, but the house church model is. This is not to say when I say church buildings are not biblical, I'm not saying they're anti-biblical. I'm just saying they're extra biblical. But the house church model is biblical. That is what the first century church started out as. I just wanted to share something that was awesome that we did um, a few years back. So a few years back, we, we had the snowstorm, right? And we made, the, the leadership made the decision to cancel coming to church that day because it was um, hazardous. hazardous, right? Hazardous. It was like a hardcore snowstorm. But um, because of the resources that we have now in like 2018 or whatever year it was then, 2016, like we still were able to have a service like online and interact via group chats and stuff. So yeah, we weren't bound to being here in this building or any building because we didn't have to be. We didn't have to be. And I thought that was a really awesome experience um yeah to to be able to do that i just yeah thinking about that the church yeah the church is not property yeah and and i and we need to be careful about the church property becoming an idol becoming the thing that becoming a new temple where sacrifice is re-implemented as opposed to sacrament um you know where we celebrate rather than 
where we celebrate God and what he's done rather than um, recreate the ritualistic laws of the Old Testament. I'm trying not to get dinged. All right, I want to remind people that you can come ask questions at the mic and also online by putting your comments in there. Um, Josh, this question is for you. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock that he's talking about? Well, that is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> it shouldn't be a loaded question, but it is. Um, this is a question. <laughs> so, so the ro- okay, so the rock, so depending on who you are, the rock is different things, which I think is why that question was asked. Um, but I think when you go back to the original text, when you go back to the Greek, you can see that the rock is not Peter. And this is a, this is a, this is a usage. I'd have to go back and pull from my um, Justo Gonzalez History of Christian Thought archives. But I think the question's being asked because of the, because of the interpretation of what that rock is and how that's affected history. But long and short of it... Um, when Jesus said it in the original language, he says, so pet Peter in Greek is pebble and rock is rock. So it's Petra versus Petros. And when Jesus, but when we translate it to English, we just say rock. So when Jesus said it, he, he asks Peter who he is and Peter makes a profession of faith. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you're right, pebble, and on this rock I will build my church, um, and the gates of hell will not stand against it, so on. But uh, so long and short of it, the way that I interpret that, and I think is the correct interpretation, is that the rock is the statement of faith that Peter made. Jesus was clever, and he used, um, he made a pun, (laughs) <laughs> essentially he made a pun which by the way is not uncommon for Jesus to do yeah. look it up Jesus <laughs> is a man of much humor so um, yeah I think that the that the rock is the statement of faith um, I've heard multiple interpretations some of them might be right also but I think the one that holds is the rock is the statement of faith I heard a great one saying that the rock is the um, is the literal land that they were standing on at the base of that mountain where in the ancient world the base of that mountain was considered to be the gates of hell and so and and it also was called the rock uh, i can't remember i think it's i can't remember what it's called the mountain but that that area is called is where the gates of hell are in the ancient world and so the interpretation was that jesus was saying to peter at the gates of hell, like, because they were there standing at the gates of hell in the ancient world. Look, Peter, on this rock where you stand, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Pretty interesting. Um, I wouldn't put it past Jesus to be able to do both, but I would put it past Jesus to claim that Peter is his vicar. And or his his stand in his uh, his protege his yeah yeah his yeah his replacement next I mean he left the Holy Spirit he didn't leave Peter anyway um so there's that and then you also have to take into account the nature by which that interpretation came into being 
Um, I would again, I'd have to go back to my volumes to research it, but I'm pretty certain that the Roman Catholic Church took on the idea of Peter being the rock when it needed to um, make itself stand out because of some. It was the Church of Rome um, was starting to get competition from the other large cities like the church in Antioch, for example. Um, other centers of power that were rising up and, you know, claiming uh, authority in, you know, interpretation of this or interpretation of that. So Rome had to find a way to give itself a leg Validity. up so that it was the, the top church out of the... And the other one was Alexandria, right? Right. And Peter and Peter... Peter and Paul both were associated with Rome, believed to have died in Rome. And so anyway, long and short of it, at some point, and there is an actual date for this, but it wasn't right after Christ. Um, at some point, the Roman Catholic Church said that because Peter is buried in Rome, then they have more authority than anybody else because Jesus, after all, said that Peter was the rock on which the church was built. Now, mind you, the Roman Catholic Church did not share its knowledge with its um, people. They, it was y like you didn't have access to Bibles the way we do now. In fact, they tried very hard to keep that from happening. And so people just kind of had to go with what was there. Um, so that's where that interpretation comes from. And I, I think that there might be some truth to the idea of the gates of hell. Um, so there might be some truth to that, but I do believe that there's full truth to the idea that it is the foundation that the church is built on the foundational statement that Jesus is the Christ of God that he is the son of God the Messiah the son of the living God yeah that's right the only other thing and you basically alluded to it right there but um, the difference like Peter is pebble like you said like a small rock and the other version Petros or whatever Older. it is is yeah it's like um it's also used to describe like a cliff, like a giant mass of rock, something like that a rock face, something that you would literally build a house on, like a foundation, you know? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, Adam, this question is for you. What does the biblical idea of church leadership structure look like? Um, that there is one for the for one as a starter. Um, yeah, like in in Acts. And in First Timothy and in Titus, it talks about different roles within the church. Um, you know, uh, elders or overseers or deacons or bishops. So I think elders and overseers, bishops, they're all used sort of synonymously. Is that true? Yeah. So overseers for elders, pastors is a new term, but it sort of falls under the same right. vein. Bishops um, sort of evolved out of the, they were more like a, governors if you will they handled like the, the the like larger the, the larger the community. details the details of things well deacons handled like the details of the everyday right so yeah so yes there is one and it's outlined in in the formation of the early church and it's highlighted by Paul and in his different letters and I think the point is that there is one you know and it's consistent with God's character, you know, God is is a God of order, and you see that throughout Scripture. And so, of course, as the church is forming, um, there's going to be order, and there's going to be different positions, and those positions are accountable to other positions, you know. And so, yeah, it all works in harmony to toward 
toward um, the benefit of the church? Um, yeah, so totes and I enact so when we see like deacons come onto the scene for example that wasn't something that was like a prearranged situation but it's from the early church it's you know authoritative and all that stuff um, but it was because of a need you know and so the church leadership that we see directly you know getting set up is just basically like a group of elders um, in each town each town had a small church or whatever and so in each town uh, people that met certain high standards of character were appointed not chosen or not like elected or whatever you know um, so there's that church leadership isn't to be like something that happens through democracy through popular vote or whatever like that but it's to be somebody that is has a good reputation and all these other characteristics that's determined by the other authorities you know in this case Paul and some of his protégés they appointed the the first groups of elders um, but the gist of it is that the church leadership is to be appointed and not elected by people that know by people that are already established and known godly people um, but then the point that I was making from that is that once you have that established deal we see an example that the church is free to expand its leadership according to need. So I think, I think we're talking about it later too, but the deacons basically, um, the elders' time was all being taken up by making sure that everybody was being fed, all the, all the spiritual growth, poor people and yeah. widows and stuff like that. Um, so they elected deacons, they appointed deacons, known godly people, that were going to take care of those physical deals the other needs of the church so that the elders were freed up once again to do their primary um, job of preaching and teaching the word of God yeah let me also say that um, usually the elders were older men um, that's a commonality that doesn't mean that they were just older men though Timothy, he was charged with teaching, and he was a young man. Uh, Paul even says flat out, don't let your youth be used against you, basically. Um, and then there's also John, John the beloved, John the, the disciple of Christ, who was, you know, pretty much Christ's best friend as we understand it in Scripture. And he was thought to be incredibly young. Um, and so, I mean, he was one of, the, he's one of the apostles, and he was, He's young as well. Um, so we have, we have a structure, a basic structure in Scripture. We have elders who are in charge of a local body, and then we have deacons who help the elders be in charge of a local body. And then you have a connection between local bodies, um, which the person who administrates that is a bishop. All of those um, are equal in their... Uh, care of the body but distinct in their task of care if that makes sense um, and they're all part of the body equally as well as the parishioners with that said there's not a lot more um, you know there's no boards or teaching pastors or worship pastors or um, you know like things like that there's no like 
rules and regulations and Robert's rules of orders and, <laughs> and all of these things in order to create the church structures that we now know where you have these different levels of eldership, assistant pastors, and all of this stuff. That stuff didn't exist. Um, as Colin said, by need, there was order that was able to be created. Sometimes there's anomalous order that can be created um, out of precedent. So what I mean by that is sometimes, sometimes people in leadership, and this might this probably come up, but sometimes people in leadership can step outside of the of the male tract, and it can be a female. Um, but um, basically, because it happens as need arises, as long as you have those things in place and there's proper respect for those things, then it can kind of look as that local church body needs it to. <coughs> so there's not one right way of operating within those lines as long as you're operating within those lines, um, which is why there are so many different denominations. Well, that's one reason why there's so many different denominations and so many different um, ways of having, like, authority within a church. And I'll say, like, this church is part of, um, you know, freely associates with the CB Northwest. But when I talk with other pastors within CB Northwest, I have no idea what they mean by elder versus pastor. Mm. Um, I have to figure that out because they have out of need established a different way of working through their um, body's needs. And I, and that's okay. That's the freedom we have in Christ. All right, Colin, um, can or should the church leadership tell me what to do in my life? That's the <laughs> next question. Nice. Um, can or should the leadership tell me what to do in my life? There is, I don't know, almost all of Scripture gives you wise counsel as to what to do with your life. So, in that vein, the pastors and stuff, they have a responsibility to counsel you as to what to do with your life. Um, what I will say about that <laughs> is that if you are, if you're in a church leadership position, this is America, so maybe this is a good analogy to use, but if you're in a church leadership position, you've assigned, you've signed up to be part of the, you know, the, f the official hierarchy of things, what you've done is you've signed up for a specific role, a specific job, right? And it's just more blatant of a line. So if you're told to do something in that role, you've signed up to do it. And so you should do it. And God, I believe that God will hold you accountable for that, for not submitting to that direction if you don't do that. Um, and, you know, there are nuances to that about the relationship between the people and so on and so forth. Um, but the gist of that is, yeah, you should do um, what you're told to do in that. Now, this is not a 40-hour-a-week corporation, though. You know, when you sign up for this, you're signing up for a worldview that extends not just 24 hours of the day, but into eternity. And so, 
you're committing to a lot more than doing what you're told to do for 40 hours. Um, God puts in countermeasures and stuff to protect people and say that, you know, your leaders better take good care of you, otherwise they're going to be the ones that suffer the consequences for that. And there's elderships and so on and so forth where um, the leaders are supposed to hold each other accountable and be this and that. But, um, you know, in among believers, love is the law. And in that relationship, we are submissive to one another. So in a lot of circumstances, uh, when you're told something to do, it's the wiser thing to submit to that and allow God to deal with the consequences of it. Now, if you choose not to submit to it, you are, in most circumstances, uh, you're free to do that, but it comes with consequences too. Like maybe you won't be able to be in that leadership position anymore because you don't want to follow those you know, stipulations or whatever, depending on what the issue is, you know. Um, yeah, so there's no clear answer. When do you guys want to talk while I regather my thoughts on it? It's kind of a big topic. Go ahead. Uh, can you ask the question again just to frame the answer? Yes. Can or should the church leadership tell me what to do in my life? Yes. Yes, the church leadership can and it should. That being said, what it can do and how it should do it is subject to scripture. So wherein scripture tells you what you should do with your life, the church leadership can and should affirm that. Mm. So, um, and will be held responsible if it doesn't. And we see Paul numerous times saying to whole church bodies what they, can, what they should be doing and how they're falling short of the standard of Christ. I mean, that's literally what 1 Corinthians <laughs> yeah, all is of about. 1 Corinthians. <laughs> he tells them how they're supposed to deal with somebody who's sinning within their body, uh, like having an, uh, essentially an affair with his stepmom. His, with his stepmom. Yeah. He tells them what they're supposed to do about that. He chastises them for letting it go, for knowing about it, and for not <coughs> dealing with it. He chastises them for dealing with their spiritual gifts inappropriately. He turns around in 2 Corinthians and chastises them for not letting that member back into the body when that member is reconciled to the path of Christ, so on and so forth. Like, yeah, it happens all the time in Scripture from the apostles um, and we are called to be right in our teaching. But remember, an elder can and should do that, but the only authority that the elder has rests on what is revealed to us in Scripture. An elder can't speak into your life um, with any authority outside of the Scripture. So if the Scripture speaks to it, yes. But if it doesn't, then an elder shouldn't. Um, I mean, outside of maybe friendship you know <laughs> but then but then it should be done with all of the things the scripture says on top of that so that's going to be gentleness it's going to it's going to be everything love joy peace patience kind all of that stuff stuff all of the things against which there are no laws um <clears throat> should be utilized in in how an elder takes care but yeah of course an elder is supposed to speak into your life 
is supposed to um, make clear what the scripture says. And there are no physical, well, there's no recourse against it when somebody doesn't listen from a legal standpoint, but the scripture is also clear that there are actions that are supposed to be taken that have physical consequences when somebody refuses to listen to the correction of an elder. Yeah. Look at Matthew 18. Especially if it's a sin issue, like a obvious sin issue. I would argue only when it's a sin issue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add is that absolutely the leadership has a responsibility in that, but it's it's also the body's responsibility in that too. Like it's not, it doesn't just fall on the leadership, but the buck stops with them, right? They are in, they have these people in their care, so they're responsible of bringing them pure before God. But it's the entire body's responsibility to hold each and every one of them accountable to scripture and what it has to say. And yeah, so it's not, it's not specific to leadership, but it is, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, I want to make it clear. When I say yes, they can, and they should, what I mean by that is, on a practical level, an elder should never say to you that based on the authority of Scripture, <laughs> you cannot eat spaghetti. <laughs> like, I am an elder. I get to tell you, you can't eat spaghetti. You have to drive a Kia. <laughs> you can't do that. But I can tell you that I know that you are living in sin, and you need to repent of that sin and ask for forgiveness, and come clean. Not only can I, but I should. And if I don't, I will be judged as an elder by God for not doing that. That is my authority based on Scripture. Whether you listen to it or not, that's going to be up to you. And I think one of the difficulties that we have nowadays is that though the eldership of the church has been charged with being good shepherds, with protecting the sheep from the wolves, a lot of them have lost. They, they are impotent. They've lost their ability to say, no, that is not what Scripture says, and you must repent and turn back to Christ. I know that's not popular, but it is what it is. And that's where we get the quality of the body of Christ, the quality of the church is from that pot process of, you know, refinement. All right, Josh, so we'll follow up with that. Okay. Um, this question is, what sort of discipline is the church entitled to use on a member? You mentioned Matthew 18. Can you outline that? So, long and short of it, what Matthew 18 discusses is when there is sin and it's been addressed in private and has not been, and a person hasn't repented of it or recognized, um, you know, its toxicity and they need to get rid of it, then there's sort of this culling process, right? This, this, um, rem this, this process where you're, where you take this person through a, a disciplinary, um, set of actions and let's be really clear the church is never to institute punishment ever but it is to institute discipline discipline is what we're called to do we're called to be disciples of christ right 
And so disciples of Christ are sort of like martial artists in the sense that they follow a discipline. So when we say institute discipline, this is what we're talking about. Somebody has stepped outside of their discipline. They are no longer rigid in their, in their um, morality, I suppose. And so because of that, they are called to be disciplined. And that process has, this, has these different levels of accountability in Matthew 18, um, getting sort of larger and larger from having uh, one witness to you know, multiple witnesses to speaking in front of the congregation. And then eventually it comes to the congregation needing to ostracize that person. And that means to, to stop associating freely with that person now, here's, here's the catch, and this is the 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians switchover. But basically, you're not ostracizing that person as punishment. You're not ostracizing that person in any sort of happy way, any sort of <laughs> um, nonchalant way, any sort of lording it over them way. You're ostracizing that person because they're toxic. And your hope is to get that person back into a state of discipline where they're no longer toxic anymore. So what you do as a congregation, and the whole congregation is supposed to do this, according to Matthew 18, is you don't talk to that person anymore. You don't associate with them, um, allowing them to, you don't allow them to have the benefit of being a part of the body so that they will come to the understanding of how beneficial it is to be a part of the body. And the whole purpose of that is to bring that person yeah. to a remembrance of where they're supposed to be, what they had, and what it was like to be healthy in the body so that that person can come back. So, and you are supposed to welcome that person back with open arms once that toxicity is addressed. If at any point, so a congregation absolutely has the right, and I might say the responsibility, to enact church discipline. Too many congregations either don't, or they don't do it in a way that is loving. Church discipline is a sad practice. Mm -hmm. It should never get to the point where a person has to be ostracized from the community. If they get to the point where that person is ostracized from the community, especially in America, nine times out of ten, that person is so far gone, they're probably not coming back. Um, but <laughs> if what you have is a situation where it's sad and you, you want to not have to go through that process um, and you're open to reconciliation, then it is something that works. I don't know if that answers the question. It, it, the church has a responsibility and a right to do that. And again, I want to say, I think not enough congregations and not enough pastors take seriously the security of the church body and their responsibility as shepherds to remove toxic elements from within the sheep pen. And just to hit a little bit harder on what you alluded to earlier, it starts, that discipline procedure starts with, a, I mean, it's pretty much start to finish a social process, mm -hmm. but it starts with a private social process where one person finds out that another person is doing something that they're not supposed to, that they know they're not supposed to or whatever, and they go and they talk to that person privately. That's what they're supposed to do. If that, if you, 
if you see that somebody is engaging in some sort of sin or whatever, and you turn around and you go tell, you know, your friends or you go and tell your pastor or whatever, what they should do if they're being true to the scripture is say, you need to go talk to that person privately. And if that doesn't work out, then come back and talk to me and we'll get one or two more people and we'll go back to them and try to convince them, try to sway them back to God. And then, only then, if those things don't work, if those social processes don't work, are we forced to address it on a a more drastic level. But even those things, while they're loving, I mean, like we were sort of talking about uh, the last time in terms of having a right and responsibility and so on and so forth to enact discipline on the people, like those things are to, to be whatever is needed for that person, you know, because the top priority is to get them back to God. So, for example, um, in Titus, the people of the island of Crete were, like, known to be troubled children, let's say. You know, they're known to be, like, liars and, and uh, you know, thieves or whatever. Like, they're known to be people that sinned a lot. And Paul told Titus that because of that, because of their issues, you need to make sure to reprimand them sternly, you know, to not be like this gentle, like lovey-dovey, hey, you need to come back to Jesus and whatever, but do whatever it takes to get those people back to God and get them pure so that you have a quality church that follows God's commands. Thank you. Adam, this question is for you. What do you do when you can't find a church where you fit in? Um, I would say, hmm, my first thought is look inward and ask yourself why. Like, be introspective rather than accusatory, I guess. You know, why can't you fit in? Is it because you're not willing to um, be disciplined? Is it because you're not willing to be obedient? You know, um, so I would, yeah. I find it hard to believe that w- there isn't a place out there for everybody. I don't, I don't accept that. Like, I just don't. So I, I would say always be introspective and ask yourself why and what are the chances that it's because of you, not because of them. <laughs> and that's not a very um, articulated answer, but or backed up answer. Um, so if you don't, if you feel like you don't fit in at a church, what that says to me is that you feel like, um, being at a church isn't an easy thing for you, that you don't socially fit in or, or whatever it is, however you want to frame that. Um, but God's purpose for people and for each body is to have a complete set of, of parts. And the fact of that is, is that some people are needed like as we see all throughout scripture through the prophets and more that prophets are needed you know people are needed to go against the grain and and correct things so